This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season two of Reinvented, we're exploring ways to design a better life from your physical health to your mental well being and far, far beyond. Today, I'm joined by Pete Davis, author of Dedicated The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. I speak with Pete about the downside of keeping your options open, what we can learn from other long haul heroes, and how choosing to commit to something outside of yourself can change your life. All right, let's get started. So, Pete, by way of background, you are the founder of the Democracy Policy Network, or Deepin. You have a, a podcast called This Is What Democracy Looks Like. Yep. And you just finished uh, a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. So I'm thinking about all the things you're working on, and there are no shortage of, of policy challenges in this country, right? So given your other work, why write a book right now about dedication? You know, the the original reason I gave the speech that inspired this book and the original reason that I decided that the speech was worth expanding into the book is actually because of the political causes I care about. It okay. does not surface that much in the speech or in the book, but the origin story of each uh, is the idea that if I had to think about, you know, I was given this opportunity to give the speech to 30,000 graduates and whoever was watching online. And, you know, when you have that opportunity to have five minutes to talk to people about whatever you believe, you have to think really hard about, okay, what is at the core foundation of what I want to say to advance the things that I care about, the values I care about, the causes I care about. And I, you know, I could have talked about the concrete substance of the specific causes I care about. You know, I particularly care about the deepening of American democracy, the deepening of American solidarity, the revival of civic life in America. And I could have gone into that in the speech. But what hit me is, as I was reflecting in preparation of the speech, was what the single most significant in inhibition to all the different things I care about was the idea that there simply was not enough people working on these causes. We needed an increase in the amount of civic agents working on the important causes of our time. And then I reflect on, okay, why aren't there enough people working on these causes? And what I had, you know, what I, my take on what it is, is it's, Actually, that we are constant, you know, it's not that we aren't moral. It's not that we don't have the proper tactics or strategies. I think it's mostly that we are caught in what I called infinite browsing mode, thinking we have to work on everything and thus we end up working on nothing. And we don't have enough moments of attachment to commitments to particular things larger than ourselves. And that's why um, I gave the speech and wrote the book. So I see them as connected that. Uh, you know, advancing the the rather abstract cause of commitment will uh, advance the particular causes I care about in the policy world. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's it's genius, frankly, because I think there's a lot of people who are writing books or, or advocating on behalf of their their issue, right? And those are noble causes, and we need people to do that. But I think there is something to what you're saying, where if you don't have an army of people who can pick that up and not just be with you when you first launch that, whatever it is, but like can actually see it through and sustain it then most of these things aren't going to go anywhere. So I think I think you're onto something really large with this insight. Yeah, you know, it's based on uh, this optimism about people. You know, I think if I was cynical about people, 
I wouldn't care about commitment that much. But I actually am totally amazed by how much someone can get done in 10 years of work on something. You know, yeah. I'm uh it's there's like an old Bill Gates line. It's like we overestimate what will happen in the next year and underestimate what will happen in the next decade. And yeah. I just believe that on the individual level about humans, you know, we overestimate what the big march or the big epic speech or your epic takedown on Twitter of someone will be or even larger things like the single election victory will be, but we totally underestimate what like a single person or a small group of people churning away over, you know, I, I start with 10 years usually, but even like five years, the capacity of a committed, dedicated person to improvise, to figure out new paths, to recruit more, to inspire people through their dedication, uh, to develop a depth of expertise and deploy that depth of expertise to, uh, you know, uh, chip away at something is really, really powerful. And But that power is not unlocked unless we can get people sustained working on a single thing for a sustained period of time. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. Let's come back to that in a little bit. But let's let's dive into the problem itself, right? So let's talk about infinite browsing mode, which is genius. Um, and and let's describe, like, walk us through what it actually is. You give an example in the book um, about Netflix that I feel like anyone can relate, we can all relate to. Just kind of what what is the problem in a nutshell? What does it feel like? Yeah, so I like starting with what I call literal infinite browsing mode. So it's actually <laughs> the first paragraph of the speech end of the book, which is, an experience that I'm sure many of you listening out there have had. Uh, I sure have had it. I've had it even after writing a whole book about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is uh, like last night, um, at least 20 minutes of browsing. Um, which is the idea that it's late at night and you start browsing Netflix or Disney Plus or Hulu or something, uh, looking for something to watch. You scroll through different titles. You read a few reviews. You maybe stop click out, watch a few trailers, then like read something again, then read an article on if this is actually a good movie or TV show to start or not. You keep browsing and browsing and browsing and suddenly you wake up from your haze. It's been 30 minutes. You're too tired to watch anything now. You turn to your spouse and say, you know, why don't we just go to sleep? You know, we didn't succeed in clicking out of the the home screen. Um, and uh, you give up, basically. And that's everyone kind of has experienced that when browsing something as, you know, insignificant as just what movie you want to watch at night. But my whole thought is, you know, we experience that on a much larger scale in every part of our life, which we usually call as a positive phrase, but part of my speech in this book was kind of attacking this phrase and not say it's not as positive as it seems, this idea of keeping your options open, that mm. I'm just going to browse around, you know, every single person I can, any single, any single place I can, I'll take a job that I know will help me with the next job and thus I'll never really get rooted to it, I'll uh, dabble in this cause but then, you know, bop into another cause, I'll dabble into this type of helping someone but then bop out of it and thus, you know, say I did my part. Um, and this, it's infinite browsing mode for everything in our lives. And if we want to go one level of highfalutin up from this, you know, the person that wrote the much more highfalutin version of my book is this Polish philosopher, Zygmunt Bauman, and he calls it liquid modernity. So he calls it liquid modernity in the sense that we live in an age where we never want to commit to one identity or place or community. So we remain, and here's why I called it liquid modernity, like liquid 
in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape, just like how liquid can go into a square hole. It, if it stays as liquid, yeah. it can go into a round hole. Um, and it's not just an individual story. It's a cultural and structural and political story, too, where the institutions around us also are becoming like liquid where they try to they don't know what the future is going to be like they don't want to stay in one shape and so as we're jumping around from thing to thing they're becoming less loyal to us or less loyal to a specific mission or form so they remain like liquid too and um they don't rely on us we don't rely on them and uh that's liquid modernity it's infinite browsing mode but for everything in society so that is the opening from the smallest psychological experience of browsing a home screen to the personal journey of like browsing through everything in your life to the whole cultural story of the liquefaction of our world yeah so let's play with that so when i think about uh that netflix experience um and and I, or like standing in the supermarket and you're looking for I don't know, hot dogs, and there's like 30 different kinds and you just get lost in trying to choose the best one, right? Which something that's like totally inconsequential, but that choice, that paradox of choice, right, becomes problematic. Like on a personal level, and in those examples, like it's annoying that you don't find something to watch. Maybe you get frustrated. Maybe you're like, you kind of laugh at yourself or like curse technology, but like it seems somewhat inconsequential, right? But when you start talking about things like, um, you know, people's careers, their vocations, people never settling down into something or people not attaching to some of these bigger, like existential challenges in our world, things like global warming, racism, et cetera. Like those suddenly become, they feel like they're actually much more meaningful, right? Is that like, is that basically the crux of it that like what seems really small and is easy to kind of laugh at is actually true in all of our lives. And and, and some of those implications are, are quite dire. Yeah. You can look at it past looking or future looking. So past looking, think of all the precious things that we appreciate today, all the institutions that make things work, all the reform projects that change things for the better, all of the people that were dedicated to you um, or your community to make your community work or make you kind of help you when you when when you were growing up, all the people that love places, all the craft practices that are sustained that, you know, keep basketball rolling or keep Brazilian jiu-jitsu going or keep the piano going or keep classic rock going, whatever. Um, all of them are because there were hundreds, thousands of long haul heroes that were dedicated to them over the long run. And then when you start thinking about that and you start going future looking, all the continuation of those beloved institutions, all the necessary reforms that we still need to have, all of the causes we need to advance, all the places that need love, all the children that need to be mentored or or, or people that need companions or, or crafts that need to be brought to the new generation, they need long haul heroes too. And so... I sometimes refer to this book as a, a book of public interest self-help because it's not it's helping yourself get better, but not just for yourself. It's for the world needs us to become a more dedicated people, needs us to be more committed. And it's that's it when it comes to impact, like making the world better. But on a personal level, what comes with this type of dedication? purpose comes with it, a sense of meaning in, in the world, a sense of substance to your life. Community comes with this, a sense of uh, a, you know other people that you're connected with. Your stories are weaved into their stories. You're given an audience to your life as you become an audience to their lives. You're not just kind of doing things all alone. Um, and three, 
joy comes from this. If you talk to super dedicated people, they might not along the journey. They'll I interviewed 50 long haul heroes for the book. They were not happy the whole time, but they were deeply joyful and they felt a deeper and deeper sense of existential peace. Um, though, you know, I say in the book, and I really believe this. We can't control the length of our days, but we can control the depth of them. And Mm -hmm. one of the deep ideas of commitment, then this is where I get the most spiritual about this, is that the more you layer on time to something, the more magical it becomes. Um, And the more, you know, the more you get into baseball, the more amazing a game is. The more you Mm -hmm. get to know your neighbor, the more you get to know a person, the deeper your relationship is, the more special it feels. The more you return to a tradition, the more amazing the 54th anniversary of the fish fry is than the second anniversary of the fish fry and um, the annual fish fry or something. And um, the way to feel that sense of kind of magic in in the world is through dedication as well. There's something really special going on in it. Um, And if you talk to super dedicated people, they'll tell you about that. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. Cause like I, I, um, when I was in college, I got into to vinyl, like started collecting records and bought a turntable and all that sort of stuff. And it's since become quite fashionable. But one of the things I noticed about it is like, it, you know, music is not the same. So like if I'm on Spotify and I listen to, I don't know, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, like it's a great album. Like I get it. It's good. It's really different, though, if like you actually like you go to a record store and you find like that that album and you check it out and you make sure it's good and you go back and you listen to it and you're like reading the liner notes and you're reading and paying attention to who's playing on what song and you're reading the lyrics like you start to invest time in that and the experience of listening to that album, the same album that you could listen to before, like it feels totally different, right? You connect with it in a really different way. And and that's just the beginning, Chris. It's like the album's one. First off, like listening to the whole song is a step we need to have, you know, but then <laughs> listening to the whole album and then um, listening to the whole corpus of a, mm-hmm. of a band or a singer and knowing that, um, you know, knowing the references of you know how they're referencing something from four albums back um or knowing that this is a total break from what they've done before and thus it feels special you know there's uh you know when dylan went electric it was only special because you knew him already being acoustic and then him going electric is a break but nothing is special only outside of context and the depth of engagement, the continued relationship with something is what makes any aspect of something, you know, special. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a lame, like throwback person of my generation, but like, so I'm, I'm a little young for this fan base, but I'm a big fan of David Letterman. And, uh, he did a Super Bowl commercial with Jay Leno in one of the final years. It was Jay Leno, Oprah, and Letterman doing the Super Bowl commercial. Like, I think it was for Doritos or something. Or it was it was like uh, something. And um, as a Letterman fan, I knew he was in this 20-year feud with Jay Leno. I knew he had broken off his relationship with Oprah because he had this bit about Oprah and then they got in a fight and then they weren't, they needed to make up. And the fact that he was sitting on the same couch watching the Super Bowl with Jay Leno and Oprah, because I was such a deep fan, it was the biggest joke of all. And I just, that 30 seconds brought me so much delight. But yeah. if I only just experienced that flipping through a TikTok stream where I never built up a relationship with him and his story and the epic, you know, epic within his little industry um, thing, it has much less meaning. And so, you know, the path to deeply enjoying things beyond just their surface level qualities also comes through commitment. 
Yeah. So I want to, I want to shift in a moment and talk about like why we don't do this and what's standing in our way. But, but before we go there, I think you're like, you're making a compelling case for experiencing things. I think when we talk about big social issues, I totally get that. Like you need people to be doing the work. Parenting seems like one where we're still doing this. In fact, I think you call this out in the book where like people are still very dedicated to their children, maybe even to a fault. Like we're doing everything to make our children's lives easier, better, more competitive, all that sort of stuff. Um, but what about at work? When you talk to those 50 people or you think about your own experiences, your classmates, et cetera, is there, is there a heightened state of satisfaction? Is there an ultimate benefit that you get out of commitment in a professional setting that you don't get if you are bouncing around from job to job every two, three years trying different things? Yeah. And I, I do, I think this does happen. Yeah, no, I like this because it's kind of taking it from on one side's grand, you know, fighting, fighting against global warming. Another side's really intimate, like the relationship we have in marriage or the relationship we have in parenting. And then this middle place, you know, um, uh, what about what's the, how does this play out in work? And I do think this is a big part of feeling, um, feeling satisfaction in work and feeling and having impact in work in the book, you know, work's complicated because there's all these political fights over how jobs should be structured. There's a book that just came out this year that I actually like called work won't love you back, which, um, is a case against, you know, one-sided uh, work relations where you're being told at the, you know, corporate retreat, you know, we're all going to hustle hard for this company, but then <laughs> the second that you're not useful for the boss anymore, they fire you. Like, I wanted to kind of avoid saying this is just kind of committed all costs, even if it's a bad deal for you. Um, but I have two phrases in work that are deeper, fra- that I think we've lost as common phrases in our culture. So one is vocation, which is a sense of calling, which is a sense of work, not just as something that makes money, um, but something that is part of the like grand work of being a human in a society, you know, and every single industry, you know, most industries, some actually people might make a claim they're, they're useless or they're negative, but vast majority of industries, there's some mission at the heart of them. You know, the accountants are making sure things are, um, you know, ordered right and money is used prudentially. The plumbers are fixing the pipes. The lawyers are making sure equal justice. The doctors are healing. You know, um, the, the, the engineers are making sure things are built properly, you know, and on and on. There is a sense of calling, which is different than career. You know, career is often associated with like status and how am I going to move up? How am I going to move to a higher income bracket? That's, I'm not going to be some random early 30 something telling everyone, you know, don't care about that or something. Everyone has their own journey through that. But I do want to talk about this other side, which is a deeper side of vocation, a calling of something higher from a deeper place to some higher purpose, some higher public mission in what you're doing with your work life. Um, There's another word I wanted to reclaim in the book, and I have a section on it, which is a profession and Mm. this professionalism. And professionalism is often thought of in common culture, like the vulgar sense of professionalism is, oh, it means you uh, don't cuss at work and you, you know, you wear a proper suit and you're always kind of talking in stilted terms when you're, you know, informal stilted terms when you're at work with everyone and never like bringing your personality to work. That is not what I mean by professionalism. I mean professionalism as, and professions 
as a community of competence. It is mm-hmm. a a it's kind of like a vocation, but it's for everyone in the profession together. So I'm went to law school, I'm part of the legal profession. The legal profession isn't just a group of people that have an industry that makes the money. It's supposed to have a higher calling of a mission in the public and to be part of a community of fellow practitioners of that is to, you know, tend to the community of them working together to serve this public use and public need. And to be a professional is to kind of stand by the quality of your work and advance the mission of your profession. You know, in the 1800s in the United States, guilds of people in the different trades would be part of parades in in the center of town to say like we are the plumbers of this town or we are the uh the joiners you know wood joiner uh joiners of this town or we are the nurses of this town and there's something important we do as a mission for the group of people together we work together to advance this mission we work together to hone our craft and everyone in good standing is someone who can speak to saying we are part of a shared community of competence and um that is another sense of, you know, ask yourself, not just how can I, you know, what's my next move to move up in the status hierarchy. Also ask yourself, what is my vocation? What is my deeper calling? And wh- and that's like an individual journey. Then the collective journey is what profession do I want to join? I want to learn about the history of this profession. I want to think about the future of it. I want to play my role in passing it off to the next generation. I want to hone the equipment of it. I want to reflect on the mission of it. I want it to meet the challenges of our times. And um, that also can add um, a certain sanctity to what you're doing in your day-to-day life at work. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think there's like, there's, it seems like there's two sides to it. There's, um, you know, there's the, there's the part of this where like people, I mean, I survey people after some of my workshops and you ask people like, how satisfied are you with your work? And like people struggle, even people in high status jobs who are, you know, doing the types of things that other people aspire to. A lot of them don't feel super satisfied or fulfilled in the work that they're doing. Right. And so I can see how committing to something and becoming part of a profession, like professing that I am a whatever, um, gives you some sort of fulfillment and connection that you wouldn't otherwise have. The other piece of it, I think, is um, there's a book that I really like uh, by Cal Newport called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the premise of the book is basically if you want to be successful, um, if you want to be really have outsized success professionally, you have to stick with it. You have to actually commit to something and you have to get really, really good at it. And the, the, uh, the paradox of that is it's not very fun in the beginning. And so people tend to think like, I should pick what I like. But I think what he he's argued in the book is, no, that's not quite correct. Like you should pick something and get really good at it. And as you get better at it, it becomes more enjoyable. And so the enjoyment and the rewards come after you've committed to something. And so maybe both are true. Maybe they're complimentary, but I think there's something there. I totally agree. And I, I actually apologize for going into the super kind of grand highfalutin stuff before getting into the just the practical aspect of being doing your work involves honing a craft over time. And the simplest connection between commitment is exactly what you said and what Cal Newport says, which is to become a master of a craft requires sustained attention to it over the long run. And there's so many great, you know, people have put great things on it. You know, Newport writes about it all the time. Deep Work is his other great book on this about how the work you do with a craft needs to 
be in depth as well, like writing this book. You know, one thing is the journey and the craft of honing my writing and honing my worldview. There's another of the instances in the craft of like writing this book required sustained attention. Um, The other is, you know, Ira Glass talks about the taste gap, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't heard him talk about it, I highly recommend Google. I'll butcher it here, which is... um, if you're into if you're into something, it's probably because you have good taste. Um, like you want to get into hip hop because you love, you know, you're really good at listening to good stuff, or you want to get into art because you love looking at paintings. And um, you start with a lot of good taste, but you don't have skills yet because skills take time to build up. And so yeah. the first part of your journey in the craft is knowing because you have good taste that your work is awful. <laughs> And that's right. the most painful thing. <laughs> if you didn't have good taste, you'd think your work was good and it'd be fun, but you'd get nowhere. And so you have to get through the taste gap where your work gets better and better and better. And you just have to just grit through the pain of knowing it's not up to your taste. But then there's one day where you make an instance of your craft and you say, wow, I like that. <laughs> it yeah. meets my taste. And then you've crossed the taste gap and it starts getting a lot more fun. Yeah. So, Pete, you know, I want to talk about in a moment, I want to talk about the, the counterculture of commitment and what that all looks like. But but one question that I'm curious about is so it seems like there is this gap here where there's all these benefits to committing, right? Depending on whatever it is you care about, whether it's, you know, day to day enjoyment, finding things to watch on TV, your work, your your relationships, the communities in which you work and live, all that sort of stuff. Um, like there's clearly those benefits. And yet you talk about infinite browsing mode. And the fact that we're stuck in this, is there one or two things that are behind this? Like, are there one or two central causes, um, whether that's like technology, you mentioned institutions before, maybe people are getting, I don't know, lazier, more selfish, want more instant gratification. Like, are there things we can point to or is it really like it's everything conspiring together and it's just the situation that we find ourselves in? So we can talk about this at the individual level or the cultural societal level. So let's start individually. One reason uh, we're stuck in infinite browsing mode is that a lot of browsing is fun and good, <laughs> you know, and I, I have the first section of my book after the introduction, the opening chapter of the meat of the book is I want to give browsing its due because I want to earn the trust of people to say, you know, I get why we're browsing. So one of the things of browsing that's good is it gives you flexibility. It makes everything a lot more chill. It lets you explore. When you get to explore, you discover really, you discover your authentic self. You discover things that fit you better than your inherited involuntary commitments. And that is such an amazing feeling to browse around the hallway and peek into a room and see, wow, that speaks to me in that room more than anything I've ever experienced before. And then bop around to another room and see that something else speaks to you and slowly hone your authentic self, you know, your discovery of your authentic self. And, you know, on a totally simple level, it's really fun to browse around. So the reason we are first attached to browsing is it has a lot of good things that come, but my whole message of this book is each of these good things are haunted by bad things. So, um, 
you know, the flexibility is haunted by choice paralysis. You jump from thing to thing because it's all chill and it's exploration time, but then suddenly you've seen everything. You're haunted by the option. You want to choose something, but you're suddenly haunted by all the options you've seen and all the futures you've imagined. And you're stuck with what the psychologist Barry Schwartz elucidated at length in the paradox of choice. More choices doesn't lead to more satisfaction because it makes it harder to make a choice and be satisfied with your eventual choice. The authenticity is all good. You have these beautiful moments where you discover something true about who you are. But if you keep searching and honing and honing and honing, finding the perfect set of characteristics that define you, I am a Lakers fan. I am an electrician. I am Buddhist. I have, I like this ice cream flavor. I like sushi. I like the Rolling Stones. You know, and you only expect the things that you would be asked to join up with to meet those characteristics perfectly. You'll end up never joining up with anything, and you'll feel a sense of spiritual isolation, what yeah. the sociologist Emile Durkheim called enemy. You know, not the sense of being lost on a journey, but having no worthwhile destination. Not losing a game, but having no sense of a scoreboard that's worthwhile to respect. Um, and finally, very simply again, all that novelty, chasing the hot new thing that's really fun, eventually curdles into a feeling of shallowness, like, you know, the death feeling of like, the funniest video of all time over and over and over and over again. Eventually you're like, this is a dystopia, you know, <laughs> um, if I just watching the most interesting thing a hundred times doesn't feel good after a while. And so you suddenly feel like I want to click out of infinite browsing mode, but here's the second individual thing. Once you want to click out because you're haunted by, you know, the paralysis and anime and, and uh, shallowness, three fears kick in. One is the fear of regret. You start fearing that if you choose something, you'll uh, wake up 20 years later and wish you had chosen something else. We all know fear of regret. Classic one as well, been talked about for the last five years, the fear of missing out. The fear okay. that if I commit to something, it'll give me responsibilities that will prevent me from being everything, everywhere, with everyone. And finally, uh, and this is one we don't talk about enough, is the fear of association, which is the fear that a commitment will threaten our sense of identity or reputation or control. You know, if I join up with that party or that religion or that profession or that cause um, or even that person, that will make me a different type of person. It's not who I truly am or that will make my friends think I'm weird or, you know, I'm going to have to deal with all these details of that person or all the things that come with this, or I'm going to have to reveal my vulnerable self to this cause right. or this person or this institution. And I, I don't want to do that. And so those, the original temptation of infinite browsing sticks us, uh, you know, browsing catches us when we feel like we're ready to click out, then these fears prevent us from doing so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, you know, I, I think about various experiences in my life where like you, you, you have, you live that, right. You experience that. Like, for example, I remember, um, after I'd gotten sick, I remember thinking, and, and I at that point just had uh, my daughter. And so I started thinking with my wife about, you know, spirituality and, and how do we want to raise our daughter and just on our a personal level, our own faith and, and belonging to a community that was bigger than just us. And so I remember, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to do some exploring and going and, and spending time at probably six or eight different congregations, right? Different types of, of religions. Um, and I remember like realizing or having this thought of like, I really love this. Like, I really love the preacher here, 
but I kind of don't really like their stance on this other thing. So let me go somewhere else. And then I'd be like, okay, I really like this about them, but this part's not quite perfect. And I, after going through like a number of those experiences, I started to realize, wait a minute, there is no perfect. Like I have this expectation that there is a group out there that holds exactly the same beliefs as me and will like completely not challenge me in any meaningful way, or at least not in ways I don't want to be challenged. And, and sort of realized that if I wanted to find a home and wanted to find a group, that I, there would have to be some amount of compromise. And I suspect that for previous generations, that was something they innately knew. That was just part of the culture of like, you, you know, you you have, there is some compromise that's required. But I feel like the problem with the Amazons and Netflix and all that stuff is like, we've developed this expectation that we can have exactly what we want, when we want it, where we want it. And that doesn't, that doesn't always work with some of these maybe more consequential things. It's, it's funny, you know, when you think back on uh, the things that feel the best in your life, and you try to, you know, reverse engineer them and think about yourself at the beginning of the journey. It's all, it's rare, you know, it's not often, it's not even, I don't think a majority of the time that it's the thing you would have chosen if you fully analyze the situation. So for people that have a good, re- you know, think about your family. And this is for people who have a good relationship with their family. If you listeners don't have a good relationship with your family, think about like your old friends that are like your chosen family. Um, you would never almost, I don't think you would from like a point, you know, from behind the veil of ignorance or something among choosing between the million people in your region, would you choose your family having right. not, you know, now you would choose your family, but like, think about, you don't know what you've experienced over the last 30 years or something. Um, you would probably not choose them. Often your best friends that you feel the closest to, it's not because you like found each other on a dating profile for best friends. It's often the person that, you know, in my case, it's a lot of my high school friends that I just was assigned to basically (laughs) by living near them. Um, And it's rarely like the person that is the perfect, you know, fit. Um, You know, the things that are the most special things in your life outside of relationships, it's often the things that you've been at for a long time. And when you reflect on them, okay, if it's not what you would choose, if it's not the substance of like the thing itself, what is it then? Well, it's the the depth of the relationship, the fact that you've grown together, the fact that you've transformed them and they've transformed you, the fact that you've rewired your sense of meaning based on having those relationships. And so if I had to boil down like one of the main, main takeaways of the book at its deepest level, it's that it's not that the substance of the options is matters zero. Like, I don't think it's that if you randomly were assigned to someone, you would find a good way to get married. Or if you were randomly assigned to a cause or a church or a vocation, it would work out. I'm just saying we way, 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 way overestimate the substance of the thing and way, way underestimate just the depth of the relationship after you've chosen. And um, and I hope that can give people a sense of calm when choosing where, you know, as one comedian once said, if you're 70% there, you might as well just do it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because... If you're 70% there, you've already like checked off the substance box. And now it's all about the depth of commitment box um, to get yeah. going on. And um, that's where most of the magic is going to happen. I think that's a good a good segue. So I know, I feel like I know a ton of people who are, you know, in their mid 30s, late 30s, early 40s who want to commit. I feel like they're dying to commit. 
but don't know where to start, right? They are sort of wondering, you know, what's the cause that I want to apply myself to? What's the career that I like? What's the vocation? What's the profession that I really want to go deep in? For those folks, how do you think about where? Like, how do you think about the process of actually picking something and then deciding to commit to it? Yeah, maybe I can walk through a few parts. So let's start with just simply going from commitment in the abstract to concrete commitments. So, um, you know, people ask me, is this book about commitment to like a health regimen or a productivity regime? It's actually not really about that at all. There are other great books out there on like developing habits and sticking with them. This is about commitment to things outside of yourself. And I think elucidating what those commitments concretely look like can help people think up how they want to get rooted in their life. It's actually an old psychological trick. If you like ask someone name things in your refrigerator, they're at a loss. But if you ask them to name white things in their refrigerator, they're like eggs, milk, yogurt, because thinking, you know, getting more concrete, even though it limits the amount actually opens up your mind. So let's start with concretely. What are some things you could commit to? So let's start with that. I lay out six that are things outside of yourself you could commit to. One is causes, and I call that the work of citizens, you know, committing to reforming something, advancing a cause, moving the world in a direction. Another is places and communities. I call that the work of patriots, not patriots in the like, sing God bless America as the bombs are falling. It's patriots in really loving, concrete, real places and communities, people you can really get to know, places you can really love. Um, And thinking about and I say places and communities because sometimes it's geographic communities. Sometimes it's more dispersed communities. Um, another is commitment to ideas and turning ideas into reality. That's the work of builders, the work of doing projects. Another is the work of maintenance, which we totally disregard in our society. We say, let's celebrate the innovators as um, this great writer Lee Vinsel writes about in his essay, Hail the Maintainers. We celebrate the innovators, but we never celebrate the people from the next hundred years that maintain their innovations. This is the work of stewards. What do you love in the world that you want to keep going? Um, Two more. One is the work of crafts, and that's the work of artisans. And it's not just a craft privately. It's joining a craft practice with others, not just like learning the YouTube skills, but, you know, joining up with the other ukulele players or, you know, the collection of people that are learning about, you know, uh, Taekwondo or something. Um, And then finally, the most important type of commitment, commitment to people. This is the work of companions. So my first challenge, if you're just wanting to become a more rooted person generally, is think about your role as a citizen, patriot, builder, steward, artisan, companion, and think about concretely what are the particular things you want to commit to. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, okay, let's say you're, you're in one of those categories, like what should my vocation be? What should my cause be in the world? Or what should I steward or something? Um, or who should I marry or this, that, or where should I move? You know, what community should I get rooted in? Now it's the question of like, how do we actually choose among the options? So I write about this in the book as a, a couple of step processes, but it gets easier and easier as you go. So first step, you have to lower the stakes. You have to no, deep down, you can always quit. And actually, mm-hmm. this sounds crazy that I'm writing this book on committing, but I'm saying praise for quitting. It's actually the praise for quitting allows the stakes to be lowered, knowing that you can quit, thus knowing that it's not like a billion-year contract when you're, you're, you know, you're moving into a place. You can, if it all goes wrong, move or get divorced or you know, quit the thing. Not that I'm encouraging that, but I'm just saying 
lower the stakes. It's not forever. Um, until you want it to be forever, which it will be. Um, um, once you like fall in love with it. And then once you lower the stakes, you got to make a choice. So what are some methods of making a choice? One is analysis, which we talk about all the time, pro and con lists. But sure. I also wanted to raise up some of the other types of ways of making a choice. I'll give one example. This one's called Ignatian Discernment, um, which is a Jesuit practice, the Catholic Order of Jesuits, where they say, instead of analyzing the things, options out there, analyze yourself when presented with the reality of those options. So their challenge is, if you're deciding to move between Atlanta or Philadelphia, imagine yourself in Atlanta really hard, you know, and think about, do I feel good? Imagine the details of it. Do I feel good? Imagine yourself in Philadelphia. Do I feel good? And notice, you're not saying, is Atlanta good? Is Philadelphia good? You're asking, how do I feel when presented with the reality of this? Um, you know, if I take this route, how does it feel? Does it make me feel closer to the, my values? Does it make me feel happy? Does it make me feel, uh, you know, in touch with the story I, you know, feel connected to in the world? Um, that's, you know, then you eventually have to choose something. And then the final thing that's actually your will is you have to try something out. You never know. You have to open yourself up. You have to fake it till you make it. You have to pretend you're committed before you're fully committed to go to the first meetings, to take a dive in the first step of the of the career, to you know move to the place and see if you like it. And do your best to turn off your analytical grass is always greener. Do I like this mind? And actually experience the thing. And then if it's right for you, Commitment has its own momentum. You start rewiring your sense of meaning to fit the thing you've joined up with. The thing starts opening itself up to you. Your relationship is built. It starts imprinting itself on your identity. And eventually, just like 10 minutes into a movie, when you stop thinking about, is this the right movie, and you actually start enjoying it, you as if it's as if you're off to the races. You know, you're now, now you're pulled in, you're pulled under by the tide of your commitment if it's right for you. And, um, and, uh, over time, uh, eventually it becomes so imprinted on you. Um, it becomes such a deep relationship. You've so exited analysis mode and so entered kind of affirmation and adaption and, you know, um, this is what I'm doing mode that you can't even imagine not having that commitment anymore. And that's, uh, that's the steps, uh, that I've found when talking with long haul heroes about how they did it. I think that's super helpful. I think there's, there's so much good stuff in there. And I like that there's, there's not one way to do these things, right? Like I, I like the idea of for some people who are more analytical, there's an approach for someone who wants to take a more intuitive approach. There's, there's different ways of going about it, which I think is great. And there's a time and a place, frankly, for, for each of those. One, one question I have for the, for you on that though, is thinking about the countercultural aspect of this, right? The fact that you are, if you're, if you become a long haul hero or you commit to that path, you are by definition now in the minority of folks. And so when I think about like the hero's journey, for example, like one of the things that's I think underrated, but one of the challenges is like the hero goes away, the hero passes some tests, they, they get some knowledge, they win something, but then critically they have to go back into the world from which they came. Right. And that is oftentimes the really hard part of like having some new, some new wisdom, some new idea about how to live your life and having to coexist with people who haven't gone through that same thing. Right. And, and so when I think about this path, when I think about this essentially hero's journey, how can folks 
manage the world around them, when other folks are, are continuing to, to not want to commit and you've started to commit to that path, like how do you manage when you're going against the mainstream? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I liked talking about committers as part of a shared counterculture, even though, you know, they're all committed to different particular things. And yeah. often some of their particular things are in opposite directions, like two cause fighters fighting against each other. You know, one person trying to win some election this way, someone trying to win it that way. They're both part of the counterculture of commitment, yet their particular things are so different. How, why, what do they even have in common? And, uh, I, dec- I I thought it's appropriate to call them that because there are certain meta qualities of what happens when you become committed. And yeah. um, it almost rewires for all of them, no matter the particularity, uh, uh, the types of things that propel you forward. So um, in you can go through each of these fears and uh, t- and talk about, you know, what are the different ways when you're part of kind of culture of open options life versus counterculture life that propel you? So let's talk about the fear of missing out. So there are two things that, you know, propel us forward. One's novelty, uh, you know, and one's two things get us out of the bed in the morning. One is I could see something new today or I could do, I could advance some meaningful thing I believe in today. So novelty or purpose are usually the things that keep people going. It's usually like when someone's feeling sad about existence, you usually either say like, there's so much you have to live for, you know, purpose wise, or there's so much you haven't seen yet. You know, those are two things. And, um, people in the culture of open options are propelled forward by novelty a lot more, you know, um, who knows what the next adventure will be around the corner. You know, um, I want to play all the carnival rides at the carnival before the lights go out, you know? And, um, whereas you start getting a lot of your propulsion mechanism when you're in the counterculture of commitment, when you're a dedicated person through purpose more, um, and you start saying, you know, I want to get out of bed, not, Maybe it will be the same thing as yesterday. Often long-haul heroism is doing the same thing over and over again. But I feel closer. I feel the magic of the depth of purpose that I feel. And even the boringest things become imbued with a certain magic or sanctity or adventure themselves because of how long you've been doing it. And so you're going to be in a world where certain people are propelled by hot new thing novelty and you're going to be propelled by like the magic of depth. And so that's might be a disconnect there. Here's another one. Um, fear of association in Mm -hmm. the culture of open options. We are constantly, you know, building the perfect, you know, individualized, isolated, static, um, self, by finding all the static characteristics like a dating profile that fit your true self. You know, I said, like, I like the Rolling Stones. I like sushi. I'm a Lakers fan. This is this is how I am in the world. Um, and you, when you're all about open options, keep your options open, all the possible associations you could have committing to something bigger than you threaten that identity um, because it's a thing that makes you less of an individual because you have to be in relationship with this thing bigger than yourself. People who've clicked over and overcome that fear of association and become committed to things, they have a totally different sense of themselves. They think about themselves as embedded and dynamic. They think about their identity as arising from their associations. They say, you know, I am a Presbyterian, you know, I am a true New Yorker because I'm like part of all these New York 
you know, organizations and I'm like really involved and rooted in the city or whatever. They say, you know, I'm a true this, that, or the other political cause fighter. Um, I'm a true plumber because I'm part of this profession. And um, they're actually threatened by the, their, their identity becomes and reputation becomes threatened by the chance of losing those connections. And so that's going to be a difference you're going to have in the world as well. And, um, but you know, the as your world gets rewired and your meaning gets rewired, the purpose and community and depth and eventually joy that comes from all this, from when I talk to Long Haul Heroes, it's so overpowering that they could never go back. And they they actually don't feel that bothered by people who aren't kind of living their life anymore. It, it doesn't even affect them as much by someone saying, mm. oh, aren't you, you're staying at that old bar, you know, you know, running that old bar when you could be, you know, off in the big city doing something amazing with how smart you are or whatever. Um, uh, they don't, they aren't bothered by that because their, their meanings become rewired. You know, the people that are bothered by the messages of you could be doing something better. Why aren't you keeping your options open are the people who haven't made commitments yet. Uh, and so it's right. actually not as threatening anymore once you have. Pete, is the, is the value in committing inherent? Like a lot of the examples you talk about in the book are, you know, like Dr. King, like putting in a, amazing amounts of work, not just in sort of the ways that get glorified, but like sitting in, you know, town hall meetings and like listening to people's concerns. Right. Um, like in those examples, though, we're talking about people who are ultimately wildly successful. Right. And obviously in that example, like not a happy ending with how that that all turned out. But um, at least it's from a cause standpoint. Yes. From a personal standpoint, obviously not. Right. But when when you talk about like committing, is it only worth it if you ultimately achieve your goal or is like the journey, the commitment itself where all the value comes from anyways? And the, the quote unquote success is like totally ancillary or a cherry on top. I interviewed a few, I actually, I interviewed someone who, uh, I didn't get in the book in the end who fought against, um, and I wanted to interview people who were in the middle of their journeys, uh, as well as people who had already achieved them someone who kind of fought against the military industrial complex and kind of a, a very hard cause in the United States, very ingrained, very trying to get kind of the voices of the, of, of foreigners hurt by the U S military industrial complex in the halls of power in the United States, which is a very, you know, it's hard enough to get marginalized people in the U S heard in the halls of power, let alone people who are hurt in other countries in the halls of power. And so someone definitely not, you know, triumphant in their cause yet. And, and I've, you know, many other people along the journey, someone trying to steward a club that isn't thriving, I interviewed. You know? um, and they're like, they're in the downturn, you know, the club used to have a lot of members and they're the meeting where it has half as many members as it did before. And they're just trying to keep it surviving. When yeah. you talk to these people, you know, yeah, there are some pleasures that come from being triumphant that feels really good. But a lot of the stuff I talk about is not just the joys of, that come at the end when everything gets, when the exponential curve is hit and you're victorious. A lot of the joys are almost kind of linear and immediate. So hmm. one of the joys is a lot of these people just say, I wake up with a big sense of purpose every day. It's not I wake up knowing I'm going to win. It's I wake up feeling that I am pushing my energy in the world in the right direction instead of feeling listless. You know, it's when I described anime, um, anime, it, I described it as it's not 
being lost on the journey. It's having no worthwhile destination or not losing the game. It's not having a scoreboard you respect. These people are lost on their destination. They're lost on their journey. They're losing on the scoreboard, but they feel a sense of peace from having a scoreboard and having a journey. Um, Two is all of them, especially the people who weren't as triumphant, um, they just talk about the friends they make along the way in the trenches. When you're club is dying (laughs) it has half as many members those members that are left you become really close to when you're in a cause that gets you ridiculed and belittled and you're not going to see triumph in your lifetime the people that do that with you um you become really close to and there is a certain joy of you know when we talk about this third element depth there's just a certain intrinsic joy that comes from mastery of something and i want to say mastery in the largest kind of sense of the term. We know the like mastery of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you can do all the moves, or mastery of piano, you can play all the songs. But there's like a mastery of a spouse knowing their spouse really well. And, you know, Mm. someone once told me about their dad, like my dad is the number one expert on my mom in the world. (laughs) And that gives him such a deep sense of joy and meaning and that their life has, you know, has a purpose to it by becoming an expert on another person. That's what a companion does. You know, they hmm. they really get to know someone and they know how to make their life better or something. And um, and they can anticipate things before that person even can articulate them. And what a beautiful thing that is. And and everyone I talk to in in that journey feels that too. So I would say a lot of good joys and delights come from winning. A lot of good joys and delights come from, you know, the garden eventually blooming in the end. But a lot of joys and delights come from in the planting, in the tending, in the people you meet along the way, in the sense of orientation and end to your listlessness, and in the mastery that comes even if, you know, deploying your mastery hasn't yet um, kind of resulted in worldly success yet. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's very encouraging, right? That you get some rewards as you as you move along the journey, and it's not, in fact, completely or even at all dependent on where you end up in the end, what the what the ultimate outcome is. the The last question I had for you, Pete, is I'm thinking about, and this is somewhat related to what you're talking about with people who are trying to build groups, right? So, someone, let's say, who's trying to start a book club and keep it going, or you know, has a, a church group or a social committee or a newcomers association in the neighborhood. Like, I think, in spite of some of the things we've talked about, there are people who are trying to do these things. I think they also realize, though, that all the factors you're talking about are in play. It's really hard to do these things when Netflix is amazing and there's like so many other things that people can choose to do on a Tuesday night, right? Yeah. So is there, um, other than giving folks a copy of, of your book, which I think is a great please, starting point. In please terms of- start there. Dedicatedbook.org. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Start there. After they've done that, are there other other places that someone might go, other ways that someone might think about it if they, they're, they're trying to settle in and sort of fight the good fight and commit to something, but they recognize that the world out there is is headed on a different trajectory for now. First off, I, I, this, I, I will directly answer this in a second, but first off, I do want to say, I am if you are trying to start something like that, I am grateful for you doing that. And you're doing, mm. one of the messages of this book is you're doing a very important thing. One, you know, I talked about the deep message of, you know, it's the depth, it's not the substance of the thing. Another deep message of this book is that the world often, you know, a lot of people feel like the world has fallen apart. 
And what is the opposite of the world falling apart? It's people putting things back together. And the act of trying to create some coherence out of the chaos in your corner of the world, which I think starting a book club is, or starting a neighborhood group is, um, you're part of the, you know, the rewiring of the world. <laughs> and um, you're doing a big thing, not a small thing. And I'll read one poem, very short poem for you from Wendell Berry yeah. to talk about what you're doing. So, and this is a little bit of practical advice because thinking that you're doing something important instead of something futile is key to doing something that seems small. Um, so here's awesome. the poem from Wendell Berry. In the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger. I walk the rocky hillside sowing clover. And I feel that's what you're doing with this is that everyone, you know, you turn on Twitter, you turn on the news, you talk about what's going on in politics or in the world or in the culture. And everyone's talking about it's darker the moon. It's the flying snow. It's the dead of winter war spreading families dying. The world in danger. We live. Okay, we get it. We live on a rocky hillside. What are we going to do about it? And Wendell Berry's challenge, the farmer philosopher from Kentucky, who's a good exemplar of this, is we have to walk that rocky hillside sowing clover. And what you're doing is that. And I actually would say the practical advice of how to do that is to just start and reach out if after you've started after you've been brave and reached out to people and asked them to come, after you have had your first meeting, um, I would be very, very surprised if you were disappointed after that. I think so many people need to hear this message that it's almost an 100% hit rate on being pleasantly surprised by how open people are to invitations to be part of that sowing of clover and how much momentum just committing to something eventually takes on a life of its own. When you talk to people who dabble in things, they're very hopeless about the things. When you talk to people who've been chugging away for 30 years at something, they are realistic about what needs to be done. They're realistic about the challenges, but they're the most hopeful people I've ever met because they see the path. And, um, I would say the most important thing is to just get started. So uh, dive in. Pete, I think that's a, a great place for us to end here. Thank you so much. This has been a, an uplifting conversation. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, and, and I think I've got a lot of thinking to do about you know wh what I want to commit to and what that all looks like. And, and hopefully for folks who are listening too, this gets them thinking about um, you know where is it that you want to apply your efforts and, and what can all the amazing things be that you know in, in, in the wake of doing that work. Thank you, Chris. And this podcast is a great example of a, of a, a piece of sowing clover on the Rocky Hillside. So I appreciate everything you're doing with this. Cool. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.